Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon, and I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And we're, we're very ex excited to welcome, as our guest today, a man who's had a tremendous influence on health policy in this country, especially on, uh, especially on one side of the aisle, not as much as uh, we would like him to have had on both sides of the aisle, but uh, a man uh, named John Goodman. John Goodman is the president of the Goodman Institute for Public Policy Research, and he has a new book out that we'll be discussing today called A Better Choice. It's published by the Independent Institute. And the full title is A Better Choice, Healthcare Solutions for America. Of course, it's not John Goodman's first book, uh, not by a long shot. John Goodman has published many books, including the very influential book that was published by the Cato Institute in, I believe it was 1992, called Patient Power, which really put the idea of health savings accounts on the map, made them uh, a, a, a household term. And, a, and, and uh, the Wall Street Journal and others have called John the father of health savings accounts. Uh, Dr. Goodman received his PhD in economics from Columbia University. He founded the National Center for Policy Analysis in 1983 and served as its president for 31 years. And more than anyone, I think he's influenced health policy thinking among free market advocates. I've worked for John. I've learned an awful lot from John. And I'm really pleased to have him here today. So how we're going to do this is a little less formal than our usual book forums. John is going to uh, give us a brief introduction to his, to his latest book, A Better Choice. He's going to talk about some of the ideas that he presents in it uh, and how it proposes an alternative to the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And then I will have some questions for John about the book and his views on healthcare uh, more broadly. And then we'll invite your questions. So with that, I'll turn things over to John Goodman. Thank you, John. Well, let me lead into this uh, by pointing out that it's been five years since uh, we passed the Obamacare bill. And in all that five years, there's not been a single Republican on Capitol Hill who's been willing to stand up and say, you know, we have a different vision of the health care system. And here's our vision. And uh, if we had our way, this is how we would make costs lower, quality higher, and access um, easier. Um, Probably the closest to it is Senator Cassidy over in the Senate, but uh, he doesn't have a single Senate sponsor of his bill. So that's a pretty poor track record uh, for people who are representing voters who are very angry about Obamacare uh, and would like a different vision. So um, let me just go over real quickly why I think Republicans, conservatives, don't have an answer to Obamacare, or one that they can all agree on. Uh, first of all, they don't understand what the problem is that needs to be solved. Um, even if we abolished Obamacare, we would not have a free market for health care. We would have a health care system that is shaped and molded by government policy. And the worst of those policies are policies that encourage us all to have group insurance rather than individual insurance. Those policies are tax law policies. Of course, when we have group insurance, when we leave our employer, we lose our health insurance, and that creates all the problems of pre-existing conditions. Then we're encouraged to have third-party insurance rather than self-insurance through health savings accounts. And then because the tax subsidy is open-ended, we're encouraged to over-insure. And at the end of the day, we have third-party payers paying almost all of the medical bills. And when third-party payers pay almost all the medical bills, then providers are not going to compete for our patronage based on price and quality and access. Instead, they're going to maximize against the payment formulas. Now, what does it mean to have a free enterprise reform? Uh, what it means to have a free enterprise reform is to undo all those perverse incentives. So for me, it's not a matter of spending. It's not a matter of government's role in health care. It's a matter of getting rid of perverse incentives which cause you and me and everybody else to do things which make costs higher, quality lower, and access uh, more difficult. If you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to take on the tax system and uh, change those perverse incentives, then I don't think you're really serious about health reform. The second problem we have on our side of the spectrum is this obsessiveness about uh, repealing Obamacare. Um, for me, the goal is not to repeal Obamacare. The, the goal is to move from where we are now uh, to a healthcare system in which the role of government is made is minimized, in which all the perverse incentives that government creates have gone away, in which individual choice and markets can begin to solve problems. Um, 
Then the third problem we have on our side of the aisle uh, is a failure to recognize that Obamacare has, in one sense, been a gift to Republicans and conservatives and libertarians. Um, think of Obamacare as having two parts. There's the spending regulatory part, and all that should be repealed. Uh, uh, that should all go away. That's fine. But the other part of Obamacare is the revenue sources. And two-thirds or more of the revenue so sources come from special interests who agreed to pay higher taxes, accept lower benefits, and other, other cuts uh, because they wanted to promote Obamacare. And uh, we're talking about over the next uh, 10 years, let's call it $2 trillion. So two-thirds of that at least is coming from the drug companies, from the health insurance companies, from the business roundtable companies, from the labor unions, and they all agreed to be taxed, they all agreed to take less uh, because they expected for some special interest reason uh, to profit from Obamacare. Um, ARP, um, I'd say more than a third of the money funding Obamacare uh, comes from cuts in Medicare. ARP uh, went along with those cuts. And almost all these people are really not asking for their money back. ARP's not saying, let's undo this. Um, the, uh, the health insurance companies aren't saying that. The drug companies aren't saying that. Uh, I know of one company that told me that Obamacare is costing them a billion dollars a year. And they agreed to it. They promoted Obamacare. And I said, do you want your money back? They said, no, we're not asking for our money back. So what we need to understand is there's a lot of money on the table put there by special interests, which if you like, sold you all out uh, for their own uh, special interest purposes. They're not asking for their money back, and then all this money is sitting on the table. Well, what's a conservative, libertarian thing to do with $2 trillion? Uh, I would say it's to have a tax cut. Uh, but it's got to be a tax cut uh, tied to health care. I would like to see it be like the child credit, just as everybody gets you know, $1,000 per child. We all should get a certain number of dollars for health care and health insurance. And that's it. Uh, then government should stand out of the way and we let markets work. Now in this book, uh, I'm focusing on six major problems with Obamacare that are so severe that they can't be solved in the White House or by executive order. They're going to require Congress to act. And let me just mention three of them uh, real, real quickly. Um, these are problems that aren't going away. Uh, number one is you are mandated to buy insurance whose cost is going to grow faster than your income. Um, and the basic problem here was not created by Barack Obama or by the current Congress. It's been going on for 40 years. Uh, real per capita health care spending has been growing at twice the rate of growth of our income. And it may slow down a little bit, but no one is predicting uh, that, that health care costs are going to grow at the rate of growth of our income. Everyone knows it's going to grow faster. So if you're buying something and it's growing faster than your income, then with each passing year, it's going to be crowding out uh, other consumption. In fact, if we stay on the path that we're on, by the time today's college students reach a retirement age, uh, there will be nothing left but health care. They'll have nothing to eat, no place to live, uh, nothing to wear, but they'll have really, really great health care. Um, obviously, we can't stay on that path uh, forever. Uh, meanwhile, and this I've not seen this discussed anywhere, there are three what I would call global budgets embedded in Obamacare that protect the government from, from what I just described. And one is in Medicare, where it's part of the Affordable Care Act, that Medicare will grow no faster than just a tiny bit more than national income. So going out forever, uh, we basically solved the problem of Medicare. Uh, uh, we did it with pen and ink. No real reform there to control costs. It's just Medicare spending has been capped. We capped Medicaid hospital spending at the same rate. And after 2018, the subsidies and exchanges are also kept. So, so all the government contribution to this is flat like this, growing at the rate of growth of our income, whereas health care is going like this. So what does that mean? It means with each passing year, we're shifting more and more of the burden of Obamacare uh, to the private sector. Um, that's a problem that's not going away. Um, and the quick solution is we need to go from a defined benefit system where we tell you what you have to buy to find, define contribution where government can pay part of the cost of health insurance, but then the market competes to decide what it can provide for the sum of money you want to pay. Second problem is a bizarre system of subsidies. Um, uh, uh, in most places, a family of uh, at 138% of poverty uh, is able to go into Medicaid, a family of four. The cost of that is about $8,000. 
they pay nothing, let's call that an $8,000 gift. Uh, if this same family earns $1 more, they're no longer eligible for Medicaid, they have to go into the exchange, but they will get heavily subsidized insurance. Let's say the insurance they get is $12,000, they have to pay about $900 out of their own pockets, and so let's call that an $11,000 gift. But the employees of the hotel down the street that are making $15, $20 an hour, um, these are the maids and the, and the busboys and the waiters and the waitresses and the car parkers and the baggage handlers and the custodians and the, the, the uh, gardening folks. All, those fo all the folks you normally see in a hotel, um, they, uh, they're, the, the Obamacare is trying to force those workers in that, uh, that, that hotel to buy insurance that's a third to a half of their annual income. And uh, if they don't do it, they get a $2,000 fine. So, um, so we have a $8,000 gift, we have a uh, $11,000 gift, and we have a $2,000 fine. Now, now, that obviously isn't even. And uh, when employers think about this, they do things and they react. And most of them are finding loopholes, by the way, which I could discuss with you. But if the loopholes get cold, uh, get, 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 um, get stopped uh, or plugged, uh, then we're going to have a serious... Uh, economic effect on, uh, on that part of the economy that employs below average income workers. And the third problem I want to point out to you uh, that's not going away is the incentives of the health insurers in the exchanges. And they are perverse. And you don't have to even be in the insurance industry to know that if, if everybody pays a community-rated premium, regardless of health care costs, then you're going to make money off of healthy people and you're going to lose money on sick people. And uh, we have all these complicated risk adjustment uh, mechanisms that uh, I'm not sure anybody understands. But it's clear that the insurance companies have concluded that they want the healthy and they don't want the sick. And so what are they doing? They're offering products that appeal to the healthy and don't appeal to the sick. And then after you enroll, the incentives, the perverse incentives don't end. Their incentive is to overprovide to the healthy and underprovide uh, to the sick. And, um, and what are these uh, strategies? They have decided that um, if they can push down the fees that they pay to providers, in Dallas, Texas, Blue Cross, in its, in its exchange plan, is paying 10% less than what Medicaid pays. So these are low rates. They take all the doctors who will accept that fee, and that typically doesn't include the best doctors, by the way. And that's how they get their premium down, and they're convinced that healthy people buy on price, that the only thing a healthy person is going to do is look at that premium. The only people who look at networks are people who are sick. So if I'm an insurer and you want to know about my network, I know automatically I probably don't want you in my pool. So we're getting a race to the bottom. We have insurers with terrible, perverse incentives, and, um, and, and, and that is not going to change until we change the way uh, uh, the, the exchanges operate. So those are my three problems um, for the... For the cost control, we need to go to define contribution. Government gets, gives us each a certain number of dollars, and that's our subsidy, and let the market decide what it can provide for that. Um, for the problem with the diverse subsidies, it should be the same for everyone, no matter where you get your insurance, at work, in the marketplace, or in the exchange. And to make the insurance market work, we are borrowing an idea that actually uh, was first uh, publicized here at the Cato Institute by an economist from the University of Chicago named John Cochran, and he called it health status insurance. And John and I sat down, and we figured out a way uh, to have the, uh, have the exchanges where the uh, people are protected against uh, uh, discrimination for pre-existing conditions, so people enter paying the community-rated premium. But then we have a risk adjustment that we use that's, um, that's based on the Medicare Advantage program, uh, which works pretty well, and that's the starting point, but then insurers are free to improve on it. And so over time, we get what I call free market risk adjustment. That's my summary. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, and uh, I've got a lot of things that I want to ask you about about the book and your uh, uh, views on health policy more broadly. Uh, I enjoyed the book. It makes a lot of very important points. I think that uh, your discussion of third-party payment in the book and the problems of third-party payment is one of the best I've ever read. I would expect no less. Uh, the, uh, but let's start with questions about Obamacare itself and the problems with Obamacare. You, you, mentioned, you already mentioned one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which is how Obamacare threatens access to care and quality of care for the sick. 
by creating these perverse incentives that you were discussing. How does a, a, a person with a high-cost illness experience that? If, if I've got diabetes, if I've got cystic fibrosis, if I've got MS, what does it look like for me in an Obamacare exchange? What, how am I going to experience that dynamic you discussed? What people are finding out all over the country is that the narrow networks really are narrow and that they leave out the best doctors, they leave out the best hospitals. Um, if you have diabetes, uh, the number of doctors that are skilled at treating uh, the problem um, are few. Uh, you may even have to travel 50 miles down the road to find one. Uh, There's a woman in New York who had a, a broken ankle. She had to go to Connecticut to find a doctor who would treat her uh, because of a plan that she bought in the Obamacare exchange. Um, so it really is a race to the bottom, and the narrow network is one clue. Uh, another clue is the very high uh, out-of-pocket payments required of people who, who need specialty drugs. Specialty drugs are primarily cancer drugs. They're very expensive. And what the plans are doing is they're saying, well, if you need one of these expensive cancer drugs, you have to pay uh, a, a huge portion of the cost until you hit your, your out-of-pocket limit, which is a little over $6,000. So if you have AIDS or you have cancer, uh, you, and you go into the exchange, you're probably in a plan that's going to require you to pay at least $6,000 for life-saving drugs that you need. Um, that's the race to the bottom. Now, what would be the alternative to that? The alternative to that is that when people move from plan to plan, they don't move at a community-rated price. Uh, the price, if you go silver plan to silver plan, the price that the enrollee pays would be the same as what all other uh, patients are paying. But the, the plan you leave would make an additional payment to the plan that receives you. So the total premium the plan that receives you receives uh, would be actuarially fair. And how do we get that? We, we start out with the formula that Medicare Advantage uses. We can even use the apparatus of Health and Human Services uh, to do this to get the risk scores. And, um, and then the, the health plans are free to negotiate better ways of, of, of risk adjustment. But through that, uh, now I've set up a mechanism where the health plans are not running away from sick people anymore. In the Medicare Advantage program, basically, the healthy are just as attractive uh, as the sick. Uh, there's, there's no difference. Uh, you have special needs uh, plans, and um, they, uh, they get $60,000 or more uh, for, uh, for enrolling uh, seniors that have lots of health problems. So. So, but, but in Medicare Advantage, it's Medicare that's doing the risk adjustment. What I, I'm, I'm willing to start with that, but then I want to evolve into a free market uh, risk adjustment. And with that, uh, you could have an insurance market that, that really works. And um, um, because plans get the full actuarial value um, of, uh, in terms of premiums when they enroll people with health care problems. But in Medicare Advantage, there are, uh, that all depends on Medicare getting the prices exactly right. Because if Medicare's prices are a little too high, a little too low, your, the, the, the amount that they pay to the private plans that cover Medicare Advantage enrollees, then you are creating these perverse incentives again where they have an incentive to deny care to the sick or to provide gym memberships to attract the healthy who are, who are where they're making their money or, or the, the apocryphal, maybe apocryphal story of having the, the this, uh, sign up for a Medicare Advantage plan on the fourth floor of a building with no elevators. Right. So you keep all the disabled people out of your health plan. That way, but that's. Well, let, me, let me just comment on that. Medicare doesn't get it exactly right. Um, uh, it, it's a very imperfect system, but it uses seventy variables, and it's not easy to gain. Um, and um, and so it's a starting point. And um, with that starting point, though, the private sector would be free to improve. Uh, so if I'm a health plan, uh, it doesn't matter that Medicare isn't getting exactly right. I need to be able to, if I can't, if I can't accurately predict who's healthy and who's sick, I can't, I can't game the system. Right. Well, I, and I do have more questions about uh, John Cochran's insights and how to uh, apply them uh, to Obamacare. You, you also mentioned in the, in the book, you discuss something that I think is very important for understanding Obamacare, which is the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, what does it mean for the Obamacare's Medicaid expansion and Obamacare more broadly, and uh, also comment on one of the lead investigators' subsequent work, Amy Finkelstein of MIT, her subsequent work about the value of Medicaid to, for Medicaid enrollees. Yeah. Uh, well, what happened in Oregon is something that never happened before. Uh, we have lots and lots of studies about what difference Medicaid makes, and some found that you know people are actually worse off in Medicaid than if they're uninsured. Um, 
But, uh, but there are always questions and criticisms of these studies. What happened in Oregon is that they uh, took uh, people applied to um, be part of the Medicaid expansion, and they took them by lottery. So now we have two groups of people who are otherwise very, very similar, and uh, this is like your controlled experiment. And uh, so some were admitted to Medicaid, some were not, and they're otherwise very, very similar. And so we were able to do the first controlled experiment to see what difference Medicaid really made. And the bottom line conclusion was it had no real effect on health, uh, certainly not physical health. And, uh, and that was shocking uh, to lots of people. And uh, some people said, well, you didn't have enough uh, experience. And as, as time goes on, we'll, 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 we'll do this again. But, but it looks like that's going to hold up. That, 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 that being in Medicaid just does not seem to affect people's health. Uh, Amy Finkelstein, one of the uh, authors of this, uh, of this study, uh, did a subsequent study where she uh, uh, did some complicated mathematics and, in any event, tried to estimate what value the recipients placed on Medicaid. In other words, for a poor person who's enrolled in Medicaid, now it's free to that poor person, but if they had to pay, what was it really worth to them? And she found it's worth between 20 and 40 cents uh, on the dollar. So we taxpayers are spending a dollar, and uh, the value to the, uh, to the recipient can be as low as 20 cents. That's not a, that's not a good exchange. You mentioned uh, the cuts in, uh, that, that Medicare makes. In the book, you mentioned the cuts that uh, Obamacare made to Medicare. Uh, you refer to those cuts as draconian, but uh, you just mentioned that. AARP and hospitals, others who had those, their Medicare payments cut, are not asking for them back. Are they are they draconian, or are they or, or are they not a, not a big deal? Because as evidenced by the the fact that these folks don't want their money. Well, I call, I say their money back. They don't want to eliminate those cuts to the subsidies that they're receiving. Okay. Um, let me just tell you how big they are. Um, some of you may remember. Uh, before Obamacare, we used to get these scary, scary forecasts of, of how much uh, unfunded liability there was in Medicare, and it's, uh, these numbers come out of the trustees' reports. Uh, when Obama signed the Affordable Care Act, we wiped out $52 trillion of unfunded liability out of Medicare. So, so if you make Medicare grow forever at the rate of growth of the economy, while, while health care costs are going like this, uh, the amount the government saves is huge. Um, now, why haven't we seen a lot of pain and agony out there so far? Well, because the Obama administration has managed to circumvent some of these cuts. So Medicare Advantage, for example, was supposed to in, endure some substantial cuts. But they went around that, and they found ways of grading plans and giving them extra stars. And, and so we really haven't seen big cuts in the Medicare Advantage program. And the, the big cuts on the hospital sector, they're a few years away. So. So, so the pain is, is on down the road. We haven't really experienced very much, but, but we're going to experience a lot if, um, if, uh, if the government holds to this flat line uh, spending for Medicare while the rest of the healthcare system is going in a totally different direction. A couple of questions about healthcare generally. You're, it, you've always been confident, expressed in the book your confidence that cost conscious consumers can force prices down. Uh, walk us through, if you could, the example of what WellPoint did in California with knee and hip replacements and uh, the effect on prices, uh, the prices paid for knee and hip replacements in California. This, this is, what happened was incredible. Um, WellPoint, which is called Anthem and other places, uh, has the health insurance for CalPERS, which is all the employees and employees' families and retirees of the state of California. So we're talking about you know, a huge, huge pool of people. And so WellPoint got the state of California to agree to this experiment. Uh, for hip and knee replacements, uh, they looked at all the hospitals throughout the state of California, and they were able to identify about 40 hospitals where hip and knee replacements uh, routinely were $30,000 or less. Everybody else was more. So what, uh, what, what the state of California and WellPoint said to all of the uh, employees is that you can go to any hospital you want to, but all we're going to pay is $30,000. And, uh, and by the way, here's 46 hospitals that, uh, that, that if you go to these, you don't have to pay anything more than your normal uh, out-of-pocket payment. But if you go outside uh, the network, 
uh, and it's more than $30,000, you're going to have to pay the difference. So after about a, a year of this, the out-of-network hospitals, the ones that were above $30,000, uh, their charge dropped by over a third. And within two years, the out-of-network hospitals were charging less than $30,000. Now, what's so amazing about this is all of you have heard, well, you know, to negotiate with hospitals, you've got to be big. You've got to be the government. Or you have to be a big insurance company or a big employer. The, the individual patient has no bargaining power. Well, what happened here is that prices came down, and WellPoint didn't do anything. I mean, they didn't get on the phone. They didn't write a letter. They didn't negotiate with anybody. They just sent patients out to tell their doctors, all I have to spend is $30,000. And that's all it took. Uh, to, and suddenly the market responded in a way that I think surprised everybody. And, and the price reductions were substantial. They're on the order of $10,000 per oh, yeah. oh, patient. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, when I said, I told you, you know, 46 were under 30. Well, some were you know, like 60, 50, 60. Some were way up there. Um, so this was huge. And uh, now uh, another another question. Um, this is a little bit a little bit wonky, but the economist in me has to ask this question. So you mentioned in uh, in the book that there are are sometimes death spirals in unregulated markets with guaranteed renewability, which is where the insurance company says to you, "We'll underwrite you when you buy health insurance, but we won't underwrite you again. We'll, we'll underwrite you. We'll charge you a premium, and then even if you get cancer, your premiums might go up, but they're not going to go up more than." they go up for anyone else in the group. In other words, you're not going to be individually underwritten again. You're not, your premiums are not going to spike because you got cancer. You argue in the book that in those unregulated markets with guaranteed renewability, you sometimes get death spirals because the people in those pools, in those blocks of business who didn't get cancer, they leave to find a more affordable plan, whereas the people who did get cancer stay in those plans because they can't leave because they can't face underwriting again. Now, uh, Mark Pauley and Brad Her Bradley Herring had a piece, uh, an article in the Journal of Health Economics several years ago called, and this is, this is where we get really wonky, incentive-compatible guaranteed renewable health insurance, where they make the case that the incentive-compatible part of that title means that actually, no, the healthy people in those pools don't have an incentive to defect, to go find another health plan with a lower premium, because what they're doing is they would be going somewhere else, they'd be individually underwritten, they would be charged a guaranteed renewable premium that would be the same as they're being charged in the current plan. Um, is, is that your understanding of Pauli and Herring, and if not? Yeah, this is getting a little wonky, but, um, but actually what Mike's talking about is just uh, another way of going at the John Cochran idea of how insurance markets ought to work. Um, and. Um, Ideally, you want uh, long-term relationships between the insured and the insurer, and uh, when people move and go to another plan, uh, they can't have perverse incentives. And what used to happen is you'd have the same insurance company that would have a pool that, that over time is getting sicker and sicker, and it would create a new plan and attract all the healthy people over the new plan. Uh, that means the, the sick people who remain behind uh, had to pay uh, higher and higher premiums. Um, that isn't going to happen anymore. And thinking about how we get from where we are now to a good health care system, I think that, that people in this room ought to just accept the fact that I don't think we're, we're again going to, I do not think we're going to win the battle of allowing the market to price health risks um, the way it used to. Uh, so I think the public demand for people not to be discriminated against for pre-existing conditions is just too strong. Uh, but I also want to say I think the reason for that is the government's policy of encouraging us all to have group insurance. And that just guarantees that when you leave, uh, you have to be re-rated again when you find a new insurance company. It, it creates the problem of pre-existing conditions. So it's a problem that the that, that government created, and I just believe that the people demand that, that government somehow solved that problem. And the way I think that problem can be solved with the least government involvement is this, um, is this uh, what I just described earlier, where we have a risk adjustment mechanism that eventually becomes a market-based risk adjustment, and um, uh, that gets the incentives right. Uh, okay, so about uh, let's, let's move on to your proposals now. Uh, one of the principles that you lay out in your book is universal coverage. And if... Uh, 
My question is, if we say that it's the government's role to provide universal health insurance coverage or universal access to care, medical care, won't the government's role in healthcare continually increase? Yeah. Won't, it, uh, won't the advocates of more government spending on healthcare always win because they could say, well, we're going to make healthcare more universal by spending more? Well, let me just back up to, to a more fundamental point. And that is, I think that uh, healthcare is not like other goods and services. Uh, if somebody doesn't have a house, we don't feel like we should go provide them with a house. Uh, doesn't have food, we don't think we have to provide them with a steak dinner. Uh, healthcare is different. Um, we just are not going to, in this country, let hospitals throw people out on the street because they can't pay their bill. So, so we're living in a country where, where healthcare is different. We're all going to be involved in paying for the care of people who can't pay for their own. Um, so if that is where we start, uh, then, then what I would advocate is that uh, let's, let's make the, the role of government as small as we can possibly make. So let's, um, I, would, I would pick just one number for me. I would say $2,500 for an adult, $8,000 for a family of four. Uh, that's what it costs, according to the CBO, to put new people into Medicaid. So that would be my tax credit, and it would be very much like the, um, the child credit. So if you have health insurance, you have a health savings account, you get your $2,500. And that's all you get. Um, and that would buy you Medicaid-like insurance. And uh, if you want more, then you do it with your own dollars or your employer's after-tax dollars. You don't get any more subsidy. Um, I think this converts a lot of money that's out there now being controlled by bureaucratic institutions and spent in a very inefficient way into something that where even the poorest people can participate in a, in a real marketplace. Um, now, um, yes, um, once you have a credit, there will be pressure to raise the credit, uh, but then that would you know, be counterbalanced by other budgetary needs. So, so you, you'd, you'd think that you know, there'd be pressure every year to raise the, the child credit, but it, it hasn't really gone up. And uh, it's not indexed. It, um, it stays at $1,000. Anyway, that's the model. About the credit, there are more than, there's more than one way to increase, the, to use the credit, uh, a health insurance tax credit of $2,500 for an adult or $8,000 for a family of four. There's more than one way to use that credit to increase the government's role. And this is actually something where uh, we've had a debate, we've had email debates uh, about this. And so uh, I want to pursue this a little. Uh, but my question for, for you is, isn't a health insurance tax credit a lot like the individual mandate? Because especially a fund, well, uh, uh, let's just start with the, the general concept of a, of a health insurance tax credit. Under a health insurance tax credit, as you mentioned in the book, if you don't buy what the government considers acceptable health insurance, you pay more in taxes. You don't get the tax credits or your tax liability is higher. But if you do buy what the government, the type of health insurance the government considers acceptable, you pay less money to the government, $2,500 or so. That's right. remarkably similar to an individual and mandate. And you're right. Right. So that's remarkably similar to an individual mandate, uh, or, or at least it seems to me I wanted to get, to, to get your thoughts on it. And, and also, if you could comment on isn't the same dynamic present in both a health insurance tax credit and an individual mandate where because the government's defining what you need to purchase either to avoid the mandate penalty or to get the tax credit, isn't there an incentive for special interest groups to require the government to, to, uh, to require you to purchase more and more stuff either to avoid the penalty or to get the credit? Okay, that's a mouthful. Uh, if you think about how the healthcare system is right now. Um, if you, through your employer, get health insurance, you pay lower taxes, all right? So all of you have an incentive to take advantage of that opportunity. Now, if you don't do it, if you don't get insurance, you're gonna pay higher taxes. So, so we already have a mechanism in which 150,000 people at work are paying lower taxes because they took advantage of that, um, of that provision of the tax law. And there are other people at, uh, at work and, and, and not at work who are paying higher taxes because they didn't take advantage of that. Um, my tax credit, I mean, I, I, if you want to call it a financial mandate, I'm fine with that. Um, we have built into the system, uh, the flip side of a subsidy is always a penalty. 
you don't take advantage of the subsidy, then you will pay a penalty. And let me just say something about where I think that penalty should go. Uh, I think we should offer everybody a universal health insurance tax credit, $2,500, $8,000 for a family of four. There will be people who turn it down. Uh, there are people who are turning, millions of people, who are turning the Obamacare subsidies down. Of course, there, uh, he's telling them what they have to buy, and what they have to buy is not attractive. I'm not going to tell them what to buy. Uh, I'm just going to say, we're, as long as it's credible insurance, uh, you, get your, you get your subsidy. Uh, so what do we do about those people who turn us down? If the people turn us down, where does the money go? Well, under Obamacare and under most Republican proposals, uh, anybody who doesn't claim a tax uh, uh, opportunity, uh, the money stays in the Treasury. And what I'm saying is that some portion of that money should go to local safety net institutions. So money would follow people. If everybody in Dallas uh, County decides to get health, private health insurance, which is what we hope they would do, uh, then the subsidy dollars go for private health insurance. But every, if everybody in Dallas decides to be uninsured, then some portion of those unclaimed credits would go to safety net institutions. And that's what I mean by universal coverage, that no matter how you decide, money follows people, and no matter how you decide, uh, you're not going to be out on the sidewalk if you can't pay your medical bill. Um, it, it minimizes the role of government. It ensures that there's something there. encourages you to be private. But if you decide not to, uh, uh, there's something there to, uh, to be a backstop if you can't pay for your own medical care. Um, about the, 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 the spending, it, 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 it seems like a very clean way to for, for the federal government to allocate spending between safety net hospitals and people who purchase their own health insurance. If you take the credit, you get the money. If you, you don't, the safety net hospital gets the money. But if uh, half the people in Dallas took the credit in the first year and the other half of the money went to the safety net hospitals. And then in the second year, everyone bought health insurance and took the credit. Would the safety net hospitals just give up that money? Would, would it really work that neatly or would they lobby to preserve their, the, the subsidies they had been receiving? And so then, you know, in this, in this hypothetical, hypothetical example, the government's influence over health, this health sector or it's the subsidies that it's providing would go up by 50%. Okay, there's always uh, a possibility people are going to lobby in their own self-interest. But what I'm talking about is turning a system under which there's no clear reason why hospitals get money. It's all political. It all right now is influenced by lobbying. Let's turn it into something that is more rigid than that. And the rigid formula I'm suggesting is, again, money follows people. The amount of money that goes to Dallas County for safety net purposes is solely a function of the number of uninsured in Dallas. Now, uh, and similarly for Fort Worth and every other city. Now, yes, they can lobby and try to get some special deal for themselves, but if we begin with the general formula and we all understand what the purpose of law is, it makes it more difficult uh, for people to, uh, to screw it up through lobbying. About the, uh, uh, I. I I'm not sure if you, uh, you mentioned people lobbying in their own self-interest, and I asked about the, the, re the requirements that provider groups and others would lobby to have added to the conditions for receiving a tax credit. You actually propose in the book conditioning uh, not just a health insurance tax credit, but the per-child tax credit, the standard deduction, and uh, the earned income tax credit on people having proof of insurance. Does that, I mean, and you are one of the free market advocates. You're one of the advocates of less government say, control. Say, say that again. I don't remember that. The per-child uh, per tax credit, the standard deduction, and the EITC, you suggested that, uh, that the government could condition uh, those tax deductions or credits on people uh, showing proof of insurance. And if, if the free market folks are, are, are proposing oh, okay. larding okay. up those tax okay. breaks okay. with conditions... Okay. Wouldn't the same thing happen to a universal health insurance tax credit? Yeah, what, what, what I meant by that is um, uh, if I offer you a $2,500 tax credit and you turn me down, then you, you pay $2,500 more in taxes. But suppose you don't have any income. Uh, well, then I, I propose, well, there are other ways that we could impose financial penalties on you. And if you are relying on the EITC system, you have children and you didn't insure them, you could have signed them up for Medicaid or SCHIP or or simply taking our credit, uh, then I propose taking some money away from them. And um, uh, there are other ways to penalize me. I don't want to make a big deal of that, though. Uh, 
I've been helping uh, Congressman Pete Sessions on a, on a bill that I think is pretty pre-enterprise. It's pretty clean. We don't have all that stuff in it. It's just $2,500, $8,000 for family of four. This is what you get if you get health insurance and the health savings account. If you don't, you don't get it. And one of the things that people could do with the, the tax credit under your proposal is they could buy Medicaid coverage. They could buy into Medicaid, regardless of their income. They could take that tax credit and say, I want that applied to Medicaid coverage for me and my family, just as they could say, I want that tax credit applied to private insurance. Does that make Medicaid a public option? Under uh, yeah. Does your plan create a public option? Yeah, in yeah. I, I was willing to make this concession to the left. Uh, I just mentioned um, helping Pete Sessions with a health bill. That's not in his bill. He allows people to leave Medicaid. He doesn't allow all the rest of us to join if we want to. But, but if, it, if it takes this to get the Democrats to sign on, I, mean, I don't see what we have to fear. I mean, their plan is Medicaid, and, um, and, and that, that's their safety net plan. And if, 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 if a private insurer uh, can't compete against Medicaid, there's something wrong with that private insurer. So, yes, I would let even Bill Gates join Medicaid. Uh, if, uh, but he has to pay the full price. I mean, he, you know, we're not going to let him go in at a reduced rate. But, but if he wants to wait in line for his care, uh, if he wants to be in a plan that you know, a third of the doctors in Seattle don't take, uh, yeah, why not? Um, but most people are going to want better than that. So before we uh, began the forum, you and I were talking out in the hall about the paper that Cato published by John Cochran, whose name has come up a couple of times, and how that is uh, the most important thing that I think, and, and I think that we agree, the most important thing that Cato has published on health policy, uh, at least since I've been here, and I've been here for 11 years, and uh, it's because of the insights, I think, that he has about how markets would innovate to make health insurance more secure. And because we had a couple of economists coming up with the title of this paper, we called it Health Status Insurance because we don't know how to market things. Uh, I think a, I've, I've given it some more thought. I think a better way to, to, to frame the, the innovations that he's, he has foreseen is as a total satisfaction guarantee for health insurance. And I can talk about why that, about why that is. But his argument in that paper is that this is an innovation that would emerge spontaneously, this, this innovation that makes health insurance more secure, particularly for the sick. And that's really where the, that, where, where the problem lies. That innovation would emerge spontaneously if government just gets out of the way. In your book, you talk about how the government should require that. Why the difference? Okay. Um, because we have to start where we are now. And, and where we are now is not just government getting out of the way. Um, and we're not going to ever do that. In other words, government's not going to say, okay, all bets are off. You sick people are out there on your own. Let's, let's hope the market takes care of you. Um, you have to start where you are now and move to the better place. And, I, and John and I uh, discussed this. Um, the key in all of this, here's the key. You cannot allow one plan to dump its sick people on another plan. Um, that is the bottom line principle that, that, that gets to the heart of everything that's going wrong now and what has to be corrected. Uh, under Obamacare, the, the, the state risk pools were allowed to dump their sick people into the exchange. Uh, the city of Troy was able to dump its, its more costly older workers into the uh, Michigan exchange. Uh, you just can't allow plans to do that. And remember earlier I said that the, the plans are trying to avoid the sick and and, and, and once they enroll, they're trying to chase them away. You just cannot allow that to happen. So how do we stop it from happening? Again, you have to have a mechanism so that if, if somebody leaves my plan and they go to Michael's plan, and this could be a very sick person, and that person, silver-to-silver plan, his, he pays the same silver premiums everybody else on Michael's plan pays. But then I have to top it up, and we have to agree on this amount of money so that what Michael gets is an actuarially fair premium. Now I can't now have not dumped this patient on him. Uh, and I, have, I now have an incentive uh, to, to take more care of that patient. But more to the point, once actuarially fair premiums are going to be paid, plans can specialize. You can specialize in cancer care, AIDS care, uh, heart care. And, and that's exactly what would happen. We would have a market for sick people with all the innovation that you're, you're, you're imagining. Um, 
and, um, and you can have special relationships. You can have cancer treatment centers of America say, okay, to Blue Cross, we'll, we'll take all your, uh, all your cancer patients. In fact, they almost did a deal like this with, with Kaiser, and it came very close, but, but didn't, didn't do it. But that's what we want. We want a market for sick people. We want the providers to have good incentives, and then uh, they'll be competing on price and quality and access. Two more questions, then we'll go to the audience. Uh, hopefully, quick questions. You write that there is a bipartisan agreement, uh, that there is bipartisan agreement, that, quote, the tax credit approach is better than all the others. Probably the, uh, the, the Republican presidential candidate with the most health policy experience, I think the most health policy experience by far, is Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal. He would disagree that the tax credit approach is the best approach. He has a proposal for what he calls, what uh, has been called, a standard deduction for health insurance rather than a tax credit. What would you say to Governor Jindal? Well, uh, it, it, it satisfies one thing that, that economists want, and that is it limits the amount of subsidy that anybody can get. And the problem with the current system is that the subsidy is unlimited. So if, if I'm in the 50% tax bracket and I'm, my employer is spending $20,000 on my health insurance, um, if we spend $1,000 more, the government's paying for half of it. So, so health insurance only has to be worth 51 cents uh, to me uh, in order for me to want to spend a dollar on it. So that's the perversion in the current system. So what Jindal is talking about is um, let's have uh, some standard deduction for health insurance and it's just another way of saying you're going to get a certain number of dollars and it's going to be pretty much the same for everybody, um, and that's it. And so that part of it is good. Um, what's not good about that approach is that if you don't pay income taxes, the standard deduction is not worth anything, and half the population basically isn't paying income taxes or not enough to, uh, for that to matter. So we leave out everybody that Obamacare is focused on anyway. Um, and... Uh, standard deductions worth more to people in higher tax brackets. Um, I, um, the, the way we subsidize health insurance today uh, through the tax system is very, very regressive. The higher your marginal tax rate, the bigger the subsidy you get. We're getting most of the subsidies to people who don't need it. Um, so I'm going to sound like a progressive or liberal here, you know, but, but we're giving away a lot of money. Uh, and not getting anything accomplished. We're giving away money to people who would have purchased the insurance anyway. So if either you have to decide the government has a role here or it doesn't. And if you want to, if you, I think somewhere in patient power I probably said, the, in the ideal world we're going to se separate government and health care uh, in the same way you se separate uh, state and religion. Uh, but, but, but if that's not possible, and so government is going to be involved, uh, then, then I say let's minimize the role of government, make it as small as possible, make it as, as unobtrusive as possible, get rid of all the perverse incentives, and let individual choice and markets work. Uh, and in, finally, in your book, you, you, say, you write that uh, under your proposals, everyone's economic incentives are ideal, and your proposals will lead to high-quality, affordable health care for all. So uh, that, that, that makes me wonder, are you overpromising? Are there, are there drawbacks to your proposals? Who are the losers under your proposals? You know, um, one thing, I'm glad you asked that question, because uh, the way Republicans think about the world is the same way Democrats think. They think they've always got to be losers. They're winners and losers. And uh, when Republicans want to reform entitlement programs, you ever think about what Paul Ryan, for example, proposes for Medicare, for Social Security? Well, well they're losers. You know, we're... We're going to, you know, for people who are seniors now, you stay where you are, but in the future we're going to cut the benefits and we're not going to do anything for you. And so, so they're winners and losers. Um, I am now writing a book which is totally focused on win-win solutions to entitlement programs. I think Once you understand how much inefficiency there is in the system, I think it's possible to, to create reforms under which everybody's better off. I can't guarantee, you know, that we'll, we'll get 100% there, but I think a strong case can be made that you can design reforms so that so that a broad group of people from here to here uh, thinks, okay, yeah, I think I'd be better off. And let me just give one example. Uh, let's say that I am rich, I'm the CEO of my company, and I'm in the 50% tax bracket, 
and um, my employer buys $20,000 worth of health insurance for me and my family every year. Since I'm in the 50% tax bracket, I'm getting a $10,000 uh, um, subsidy. Uh, but to get the subsidy, I have to buy $20,000 of insurance. Now Goodman comes along and says, no, we're not going to let you have $10,000. We're only going to give you eight, and, and that's all you're going to get. So initially, it looks like I'm, I'm worse off. But with Goodman's plan, I get the eight for the first eight that I spend, and that next 12 is all after tax. So if I can figure out a way of cutting down you know, on costs, if I can find some efficiencies, for every dollar I save, I get to take it home. I don't have to share half of it with the government. So I think that even people who look like they're going to lose under what we're talking about here, could, it could turn out that they're all gaining. Um, and that's what I mean by win-win. All right, I've been monopolizing your time, so I want to open the floor to questions. If you have a question, please uh, wait to be called on. Raise your hand and wait to be called on, and then wait for the microphone to get to you so that everyone uh, in the audience and watching you online can hear the question. I'd ask you uh, also, please give us your name and any affiliation uh, that you've got, and make sure it's a question, because those uh, questions have a way of turning into speeches. So we've got, uh, we've got a couple hands up already, guys. If you could get the microphones. Um, uh, we'll go one, two, and then three. Hi, my name is Joe Egelhoff, and I live in the D.C. area, and I'm here representing myself and my progeny. Um, I uh, want to comment on the California um, experiment and uh, would, would argue that indeed, well, and perhaps that's what you stated, consumers did indeed have bargaining power, and they had bargaining power because they knew prices, and that's... Um, been the um, uh, motivation for the HSA for all of these years. My husband and I have had the highest deductible, very high deductible policies for over a decade. So we know how they work. But they don't work, and bargaining power doesn't work, and the capital markets don't work when we don't know prices of individual medical procedures. So and in, in much I got it. Okay, got so, so much of the competition is talked about for health insurers. I got, I got your point. It's, it's just impossible to find um, them. The reason you don't see real prices is um, because we have a market dominated by third-party payers, and so therefore most of the time we're not paying a price at all, uh, and uh, so the doctor doesn't know what he's getting. You don't know what you're paying until <laughs> a month later. Um, yes, that's a bureaucratic system that isn't working, but wherever the third-party payers aren't, there is no problem with prices. So cosmetic surgery, LASIK surgery, walk-in clinics. I mean, I can name dozens of other uh, uh, sectors where there's no third-party payment. And uh, there's not a restaurant in this city that says we can't tell you what the price is until the dinner is over, right? But that's not the way free market firms uh, deal with the customers. So, so the transparency, you can't force transparency on bureaucracies. The transparency will come when the consumers are empowered. I think in the well-point example, they didn't know what the prices were either until they had an incentive right. to find out, and then they found out it was less than $30,000. And for each one of them, it was probably a separate price. So, so it wasn't that the hospital's listing its prices. They just said, okay, for $30,000, we'll do this. <laughs> <laughs> Sir. Hi. Um, given the importance of diet and exercise in good health, how much can be done to keep um, health care from rewarding bad behavior economically? Well, I would like to get the federal rules out of the way and, uh, and see what the market does. Um, I'd like a market-based response to that. Uh, what we're getting in federal legislation is the government telling you, you know, you can charge this much for a smoker or this much for, and you can't do this. Um, um, I want a market-based solution, not, not a government solution. Well, I can imagine uh, insurers, um, uh, you ever taking a life insurance plan. Um, when, when I did this, uh, they called me on the phone. They, they, they asked me all kinds of questions. You know, do you skydive? Do you scuba dive? You know, they never asked if I scuba dived in caves, which is about one of the most dangerous things you did. So, so I had recently done that, so I'm glad they didn't ask about that. But in any event, it was going to be more if I answered wrong. And I think that would happen in health insurance. Sir? Hi. <clears throat> My name's Hank Werenen. I uh, Earlier this year, I founded... Uh, Return on Medical Quality Institute, which is 
I'm the sole <clears throat> uh, employee of that right now, but the idea was to change the paradigm and focus more on return on medical quality as opposed to cost. Now, I've read your book, and I have a follow-up question on the Roth HSA. It starts from the uh, notion that 86% of the costs come from chronic diseases. That's CDC number. Medicare, it's actually 91%. And the best way to control and coordinate care for chronically ill patients is the patient-centered medical home. I've worked extensively with that uh, throughout my 40-year career in healthcare, and it works. It needs some improvements and so on. But <clears throat> the, uh, the question I have is, what if Medicare would create a Roth HSA for Medicare recipients who enrolled in a patient-centered medical home and followed the uh, uh, plan that the uh, doctor provided, and concurrently, Medicare then paid a risk-adjusted capitation to the patient-centered medical home, similar to uh, the Advantage plan. You could do the same for Medicaid and exchanges. But the core idea and the thing that excited me when I read your book was the idea of giving an incentive for people to enroll in a patient-centered medical home because that would promote patient engagement and better coaching and pay the doctors more. Yeah, the, um, the most successful plans that I know of in dealing with the chronically ill and, 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 and the medical home idea uh, are in the Medicare Advantage plans. I don't know if you were connected to them, but uh, they're around the country. Uh, interestingly, um, the uh, successes I'm talking about are not actually uh, uh, being done by United Health or Aetna. They're being done by independent doctors and independent doctor associations, often organized by an entrepreneur who's actually trying to make some money. Um, so I think, uh, and by the way, at the same time, we have Obama pushing these accountable care organizations, which are far less well thought out, and, and the incentives are terrible. We already have our models working, but Obama ran for president, you know, attacking the Medicare Advantage plans. So I'd like to encourage uh, what's working. I'd like to uh, uh, get rid of barriers. Uh, I'd like to give all seniors a Roth uh, medical savings, health savings account, and, um, um, and then let the providers uh, compete for patients. See if they enrolled in the patient-centered medical huge movement toward that, we could promote a large increase in the supply of doctors who'd be willing to participate. Well, think about how we do this in other areas. If, if what you're saying is true, uh, then it means cost is down. It means the price we charge people is down. I mean, isn't that the way the rest of the world works? We I get you into my plan because it's, I've got higher quality and lower price. That should be the model for our health care. Uh, next, Ms. Young, I believe it is, and then the gentleman in blue, and then Todd. Hi. My name is Mi Young. I'm a PhD in economics by training, but I'm interested in a variety of social issues. And uh, generally, I have a concept is uh, health care, medical care is a kind of, kind of really is not a full knowledge for the consumers or patients or even their families. And it's usually depend on providers, the hospital, or even nurses. But problems in between that nurses and providers, they usually, in a sense, the real sense, fraud and abuse. I just wonder if uh, Obamacare can do anything better than that because uh, usually complaint or comments or whether it's government agencies, uh, they don't really help. So I just wonder in terms of social costs, in terms of patients' cost. You know, sometimes they say that if they bill to the patient, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But obviously, they got bills to somebody. Yeah. yeah, there's a front page article in the paper this morning talking about a new GAO study about all the fraud in Medicare. And, and generally, it's thought that one out of every 10 Medicare and Medicaid dollars is lost to, uh, to, to fraud. Um, and uh, you know what it is for uh, American Express, the credit card company? It's less than 1%. So we've got folks out there that have figured out how, and think about what you do with your credit card. Think about how many times you hand a credit card to somebody and they go off and you don't see what they do with it. So think how easy it is 
uh, for people to steal your credit card and the information on it, and yet their losses are less than 1%. <laughs> Medicare and Medicaid lose 10. So if we just let the credit card companies run Medicare, we could save a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and some fraud experts say it's 10%, or we think it's 10%, because the government cares so little about fraud in Medicare, they don't even bother to try to measure it properly. <laughs> Sir. Hi. My name is Judd England, and uh, Dr. Goodman, it's good to see you. I've spoken to you a couple times in the past. I'm the founder of MedRetreat, one of the first medical tourism facilitation agencies in the United States. And my question is, is there, there's a lot of free market ideas that are already functioning underground, and I just wonder how, um, how much they can grow and expand and have uh, so that people can understand for example, like uh, you're talking about a hospital list their prices. There are a couple of hospitals that do that. It's the Surgical Center of Oklahoma, and Dr. Keith Smith, uh, Medical Tourism Association or facilitation agencies like mine, where uh, you know people that are in need of healthcare procedures like a hip or knee replacements can find out in under $24,000 that it might cost $12,000 um, if they pay by cash. So well, do you, we, do you we, see that growing? Yeah, yes. Um, the employers have to get into this. Um, Walmart's into it a little bit. It picked out four or five centers of excellence and told its employees, if you get on a plane and you go over here, we'll pay for the plane flight, we'll pay for your, your hotel room for your spouse. And, um, and we just need to see more of that because um, uh, the local markets are not competitive. Uh, it's, um, we've suppressed competition. They're not gonna, their tendency is not to give a discount. Um, and so, so getting on a plane, flying to another city, is one way to cause the market to um, start to change. Canadians can come down here and get a knee replaced for less than half of what you and I pay. And, uh, and, and the rest of us do what the Canadians do, the whole market will change. Sure. Todd. Uh, yeah, my name is Todd Kiefer. And um, I was wondering, uh, Mr. Goodman, about going back to your HSA roots and possibly making uh, health savings accounts mandatory, where everybody pays a percentage of their income into a personal health savings account, and then also decoupling those health savings accounts from the insurance requirement and uh, allowing uh, employers to pay into directly or matching to those personal health savings accounts, greatly increasing the caps, the contribution limits, so that that can be the common conduit for, for either medical services or health insurance. And then also a la uh, putting in there a mechanism where people can look to each other rather than government. And that would be a gifting provision where you could gift, a person could gift f uh, from their account to anyone else's account. Um, th and that's all. Okay, there's a lot there. I like the last idea. Um, I don't like the idea of telling people they have to have a health savings account. Uh, HMOs are way of delivering care. Uh, for some people, that's what they want. I certainly wouldn't outlaw it. Um, let's let the market work. Um, let the health savings account be um, one way of going at it. And there can be different kinds of health savings accounts. There can be uh, the chronically ill managing their own account. There can be a totally different kind of account. Um, so so I'm, I'm for a very flexible account. Let the market decide what to do with it. Insurance companies could put money in that account if, if I'm a diabetic and I'm willing to manage the dollars and I'll be responsible. Um, um, that, that, that's one thing we could do. So we need a market. We, we should not start out thinking we know how all this should work. Again, make the role of government as small as possible. Let competition and choice decide where we go. I was going to say one more question, but I don't see any hands up. So uh, all right, well, then Tom gets the last question. If you'll wait for the microphone, please. Tom Donlin from Barron's Magazine. Uh, Mr. Goodman, you, uh, you started your talk uh, by deploring the, uh, the lack of interest uh, that uh, Republicans in Congress have had in actually introducing bills that a person could read and find out what they stood for. Um, do you think that, uh, that your free market approaches, any variety of them you care to mention, can attract any interest from uh, those very same legislators? Well, the best bill um, 
was a Coburn, Burr, Ryan, Nunes bill, which is pretty much what John McCain ran on in 2008. So there have been people with vision. Uh, there was one really good bill uh, that didn't have everything in it I would like to see, but, but uh, it did have the replace all the, the tax subsidies with a, a uniform universal tax credit. Um, McCain ran into the problem of having to explain to people uh, something that, that is very hard to do in an election. Uh, he's out there trying to explain how the current subsidy works. Most people do not know how their, their health insurance is being subsidized. In fact, most people don't think it's being subsidized at all. And an election is a really lousy time to try to explain to everybody how this works. So we have to, we have to get the messaging down. And so the, the Republicans are, are, are worse on messaging than they are on, on, on the actual plans. And they're pretty bad on the plans. And, and the Ryan uh, Medicare reform is, is a perfect example. We have a Medicare Advantage program. A third of seniors are in private health insurance plans. The government provides uh, a stipend and, and, and they pay the rest. They love these plans, they're very happy with them, they get better care, they, the, the, the lower cost care. And so what does Ryan do? He makes up a new term. What is it? A premium support. God, what is that? It sounds scary. Just uh, sounds, sounds like something different from what we have now. All he had to say was, we've got this really good Medicare Advantage program. We want more seniors in it. We want to build on what we already have. And he would have had no problem. So we're horrible on messaging when it comes to health care. And with that... I want to thank you again, John, and all of you for coming. And a couple of uh, housekeeping items. We're going to be having a lunch upstairs on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. If you go up the spiral staircase and back in this direction, you'll find it up there. The restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. And I'll see you all up there. Thank you.